Would you join me in prayer this morning, church? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in awe of your amazing love for us. It's not because of anything about us or anything we have done, but out of your pure love as a father, you adopted us into your family. As our creator and due to our rebellion against you, you could have left us in our sinful nature and doomed to a destiny of eternal, eternal torment. But because of your amazing love, you predestined us for adoption so that you could call us your sons and daughters. We thank you so much for your patience and love towards us, Father. We ask humbly for your forgiveness this morning, Father. As we are about to open your word and see that all wisdom comes from you, we ask that you would please remove the veil of the world from our eyes and see that true wisdom comes from you. Help us to see that in ourselves, we do not have any wisdom at all. We ask for your spirit to cause conviction in the church at large as it is allowing the lies of the enemy to seep in more and more and be convinced that the quote-unquote wisdom of the world is better than the true wisdom that you offer. As we are reminded in Proverbs, may we be not wise in our own eyes. May we fear you, our Lord, and turn away from evil. Help us, Lord, to keep a reverent fear of you. I thank you, Father, for the continued work you are doing in our sister, Debbie Jacobson. It was such a joy to see her at the member meeting yesterday and to see her again this morning at the gathering. Through this difficult time of illness, you have given her and David the strength to endure in their faith. We ask that as they continue to work with doctors and medical staff that you would provide Deb David and Debbie with wisdom on how to proceed with her treatment. But more importantly, though, Lord, we ask that you would continue to keep them strong in their faith so that they can share openly with the medical providers why they have confidence in you and that their source of all joy comes from you. We thank you this morning, Lord, for the new life in the Lamon family. We thank you for little Lucy Jean. As we got word yesterday, though, Lord, that she had to go back to the hospital due to some medical concerns, we lift that entire family up to you. We ask that you would give Mac and Haley peace, knowing that she belongs first and foremost to you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would be with this little one, help her to overcome uh, whatever ails her, and help her to grow strong physically and spiritually in you, Lord Jesus. We also want to lift up our, our sister Cheryl, and she is battling some health concerns herself, but also is taking on uh, full-time health care of her mother. Um, and we know that that uh, is physically exhausting, Lord. We pray that you would be with her. May you give her continued strength and endurance to help care for her family. But we also want to thank you so much for this local body and assisting Cheryl. And we pray that we would continue to be her hands and feet and love her in a very practical way, Lord Jesus. Continue to keep Cheryl strong and give her the strength to be in your word daily. From our, meeting member, from our member meeting yesterday, Lord, we want to again thank you for the time that Darcy and Gina spent here at Mission Fellowship as their local church body. We pray for them as they have moved on to new churches uh, and that you would use them mightily to proclaim your gospel to the surrounding areas. Even though we don't get to see them on the regular basis, we thank you for the unity that is brought through your global church and give thanks in advance that one day we will all be joining back together in eternal praise of your great and holy name. We thank you for the new member additions of Tyler, Malia, Kelly, Cheryl, and for Ava stepping into full membership from junior membership. May your name be glorified through their lives as they commit to serving you through this local body. While we are so thankful for this local body and what we are doing here, Lord, we also want to pray for your blessing over our sister churches throughout the entire world. We thank you for the Garcia family doing church planting and mission work, the Taves family with their work through AMF, and for Pastor Marcel and his wife Pauline and their work with the churches in Africa. May you bestow upon them a wisdom that surpasses all mankind and causes people to see you and your amazing love. Thank you for hearing our prayers today, Father. As we open your word, may you calm our hearts and spirits from the busyness of life and the week and let us focus fully on you and what you have for us this morning. I pray these things in your great and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. You can have a seat and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we will be focusing on verses 18 through 25, but we'll be starting in verse 17 just for a little context. The first few times that I traveled to Burkina Faso in West Africa, 
My wife Kelly and I had not yet had children. In that culture, getting married and having children is seen as the true entrance into adulthood for men. And so the pastors would ask me constantly when we were going to have children. And I let them know that we were having trouble with miscarriages, and in typical Burkina Bay fashion, uh, they would passionately seek the Lord in powerful prayer anytime I talked about it. The next time I went, though, Kelly and I had given birth. Well, Kelly had given birth. I didn't really have much to do with it. <laughs> Kelly had given birth to our twin sons, and so I was able to tell the pastors with rejoicing uh, that God had given us the gift of twin boys. Now, because most of these pastors knew the difficulty we faced, the celebration was extraordinary. You'd think that they had had their own children. It was amazing. Uh, true, uh, true brothers in Christ uh, to see that celebration. Later in that trip, though, the level of celebration caused me to say something to my friend, Pastor Marcel, about it, and uh, it, it paused him for a second, and he started to speak to me uh, about something that I will never forget. He told me a story about the power of the gospel. Specifically, he told me how different the conversation around the birth of my twins would have been prior to the gospel's reach in Burkina Faso. You see, Burkina Faso is a landlocked country. It's full of diverse tribes that for a long time were at regular war with one another. It, also had, it was also very arid and dry and extremely difficult even today for the common villager to be able to make enough money or farm enough to be able to eat a healthy diet. Since I've been involved and connected to that country, it's been regularly near the bottom of the list in caloric intake in the world. So prior to the gospel spread, it was purely an animistic and pagan country. And so at that time, because of the high possibility of tribal warfare, the need to be nomadic, uh, the chance of famine and starvation, when a mother gave birth to twins, it was seen as a curse from the gods. Parents who brought forth twins were seen as cursed, not blessed. Two mouths to feed in a starving land, two children to weigh you down where there was often a need for being nomadic, these were bad things in the eyes of the people. So it was not uncommon that the parents would choose one of the twins to survive, and then they would abandon the other to the elements or the animals. But then missionaries showed up, and they showed up with a message about a different God. This God, the God of the Bible, so prized life that he was willing to give his own incarnate life to bring life to his people. This God placed his image upon and within humans to such a point that he alone is the one that determines life and death. And to assist with helping life to thrive, the missionaries brought food for the starving people and helped them grow in their understanding of farming. With this message of the gospel, the thoughts of the people began to change. No longer was the birth of twins seen as a curse. No longer were the parents of twins seen as cursed by the gods. Now the view of the people was 180 degrees the opposite. Twins were double the life, double the image-bearing nature of God, double the children that could be brought up in the admonition of the Lord, and double the joy. And the parents that were able to raise them were seen as blessed by God, almost to a degree that they were blessed above other parents. What a difference a message can make what a difference and what power can be displayed to change an entire society by giving the message of the gospel. In our text this morning in 1 Corinthians, Paul will make a similar observation about the power of the gospel. But he will go beyond this simple societal change that I've just outlined. He will speak to its power that the gospel has to bring forth eternal salvation. And specifically, he will focus in on what the phrase is that he uses, the word of the cross. In a culture and society like Corinth, this word of the cross would be strange news indeed. Remember that Corinth was a place where the content did not matter as much as the delivery or the charisma of the speaker. And so a message as grotesque and humiliating as the cross would not be seen as innately powerful. It would be seen as humiliating, weak. But Paul has a purpose in stating this point here in this letter to the church. 
Paul already has brought clarity through his prayer of thanksgiving. And then last week we saw that he called for unity within the church by calling all the brothers and sisters to agree with the gospel. With our text this morning, Paul is going to reinforce this call by telling the church how powerful the gospel actually is. Can the gospel really bring unity to such a disparate people? And the answer is, amen, it can. The common response, though, might have been that unity was a bit overrated. Remember that in this society, it was natural to try and align with a powerful speaker of wisdom, men that were called sophists, in order to raise your status. The more well-known the sophist, the more you could claim status over others. You can think about it today as sometimes people will say, my team, as if they owned an NFL team, right? Claiming connection to a team raises your status. It's kind of the same thing with the sophists. But even if the church bought into the idea of the need for unity, the common response might be that unifying around the cross, rather than a charismatic leader and speaker, well, that would be ridiculous, illogical. For the cross has nothing to do with status or power or charisma. The cross was a torture device. It was a method for Rome to assert their power over all the lesser people groups and social pariahs. But this, Paul will go on to say, is exactly what shows the power of the cross. For in the cross, eternal distinctions of salvation are made, sinners are saved, and human wisdom is humiliated and conquered. This morning, Paul will describe for us the paradoxical power of the cross proclaimed. The paradoxical power of the cross proclaimed. And the beautiful thing about today is that I'm excited that we will not only hear about the power of the cross from Paul, but we get to see it in action as we gather together to welcome five new members into our church, one of whom is going to be baptized today. So let's allow the power of the cross to enlighten us this morning, and let's read from our text in 1 Corinthians 1. But just for context, let's begin with Paul's last line from last week's text in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, uh, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see this morning is that the word of the cross is a message that makes distinction. A message that makes distinction. Makes a distinction. We hear this verse as contemporary Christians, many of whom have grown up in the church, and it doesn't really affect us. We're used to it. Of course the cross is powerful, we reply. But let's break it down for a minute within the context of the original audience. As we've already noted, the whole ethos of the culture in Corinth was based on advancement and position and power. Now, this was true for the Greek culture as a whole, but how much more for this place called Corinth? Remember that this was a reestablished city that had risen from the ashes like a phoenix. The population was made up of retired soldiers who spent their entire working career in hierarchy serving others and surrounded by a fight to move up the ladder. 
There were also freed slaves who had spent far too long tending the needs of others and were now trying to get theirs as quickly as possible before death. Advancement was the name of the game in Corinth. And in that kind of background, humiliation is the opposite of what everyone was trying to achieve, especially humiliation of the cross. You see, the soldiers had used it as a torture device and a method of suppression to conquer foes. The slaves had seen their peers killed using the cross. The cross was something that no Corinthian wanted anything to do with. Can we do this Christianity thing without the cross, they might have said? Now think about the context of the cross in that day. The cross was not yet symbolic for any religious purposes. As Americans who live amidst the afterglow of a fading Judeo-Christian society, we take for granted that the cross is a symbol that even for some pagans in our society is worthy of respect. You know the old adage, hide the beer, the pastor's here? It's that kind of idea, right? I see the cross, that was a joke, you can laugh. I see the cross, and there's some level of respect I have to give it, right? But that was not the case for a Greek society within a few decades of Christ's murder. At this point in time, the cross was a known symbol of torture and the overwhelming power of the Roman Empire. It was a sign to the common people that they had no power, no power whatsoever in comparison to the Roman state. The cross was a sign of humiliation to anyone who saw it and a sign of oppression. The Romans were known for lining thoroughfares, lining roads of their conquered enemies with crosses where the bodies of conquered leaders would hang to send a message, you cannot defeat the power of the Roman Empire. And friends, this was a humiliating way to die. Those who were crucified were usually already bloodied and bruised, as Christ was. They were usually hung naked or in some form of undergarment at the most. They were hung publicly for all to mock. The means of death was not even the blood loss through the nail-pierced hands and feet. It was through suffocation that the crucified would die. Hung in that position made it nearly impossible to breathe, especially with pain shooting through their exhausted body. The only way to gain oxygen into your lungs would be to use your nail-pierced hands and your nail-pierced feet to push up in order to breathe in. And this is why suffocation happened. And after their death, often the corpses would be left, hanging lifeless for all to see. Buzzards and scavengers would then pick the bodies apart. There are very few methods of torturous death that are more humiliating. With this context, we can now hear the words that we usually gloss over a bit differently. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In its original intended circumstance, the cross was humiliation. In just its earthly form, it was folly or foolishness that only showed the power of the Romans. To turn to it for power? You have to be kidding me. So the thinking was clear. Why would anyone who is trying to get ahead, raise themselves up in this world, choose to follow the word of the cross? And friends, this alone should show us that the prosperity gospel or any church that teaches that the cross is the way to power and success is idiotic and satanic. It is completely missing this entire text. Well, notice that Paul in a masterclass on discipleship and preaching here, is using this statement to cause great conviction in the hearers. He is presenting the Corinthian Christians with a choice here. They must look at their lives just as you and I must look at our lives, our hearts, and ask the question, what am I pursuing with my life? What am I expending my time and talent and treasure on? Is it to succeed and get ahead and keep up with the Joneses, as they say? If your last name is Jones, I'm not talking about you. Is it to be the most successful person that I know? Because if so, this is an honest question. Why on earth would you ever follow the message, the word of the cross? You wouldn't. 
there could not be two more contrary messages. Following Jesus is a surefire way to not win in this life. It's actually an assured means of dying, of persecution, of being hated for the truth that you follow, of suffering and sacrifice. Yes, maybe less here in the United States right now, but across the world and probably in the future here, these will all come to pass. It's a way of being contrary to the world that we exist in to follow the cross. And so we are odd that we don't follow the world's values and ethics. So to think that following the message of the cross is the way to succeed in earthly terms, well, that would be foolishness. It would be folly. You'd be much better off to follow those who lie, steal, cheat, manipulate, kill, and destroy if you want to get ahead in this life. For they play by the rules of this kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. But notice what Paul is insinuating to his original audience and to us as well. If that is how you think, if you think in those worldly terms that the cross is foolishness and man's wisdom is better, then recognize that you are most likely one who has not been changed or conformed to the truth of Christ's word. And you are most likely one who is perishing. We know this is true because of those who gladly take on all the suffering and sacrifice and struggle that comes with the word of the cross. We do so not because we gain the world, but because we lose this life in gaining Christ and in gaining a reconciled relationship with the Father. For those who are being saved are those who have had their eyes open to the fact that we are depraved sinners who deserve the humiliation of the cross, who at our core are rebellious against God and his rightful holy wrath should be poured out on every one of us on the cross. We desire our own lordship and control over the God that created us and yet the word of the cross is that Christ looked upon us in the midst of that rebellion and decided that he would be faithful to save those who had been declared as his own since the foundation of the world. He would save us not based on our value, not based on our goodness, but based on his righteousness and mercy and faithfulness. And it was Christ who then, by his grace alone, broke through the enslaving blindness that kept us from seeing the true wisdom of God and illuminated our hearts and minds so that we no longer saw the cross as foolish. No, now we see it for the beautiful, reconciling, restorative power that it is. For upon the cross of Calvary, Jesus bled and died as an atoning sacrifice that takes the wrath of God upon himself so that you and I might be washed clean of all our rebellion against God. And we might then be displayed as righteousness in God. As kingdom citizens now, because of the word of the cross, all that was once dark has been brought to light. And we now see the truth about God, the truth about his enemies, and the truth about ourselves. We are able to have a gratitude for the common grace gifts of this life as we never could before. We are able to detest sin and fight against it in a way we never could before. The message of the cross is power to those that are being saved. In this singular verse, Paul makes a great distinction between two groups of people. And he does so as a shot across the bow of all his original audience and those listening now. For the distinction in Corinth in that day, well, it was very similar to the distinction in the world today. It was the distinction of the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless. And this is how we view all that surrounds us if we are of the world. It's all about oppressors and the oppressed. But the distinction brought about by the word of the cross is vastly different. For distinctions like rich or poor, woman or man, Jew or Gentile, are no longer the distinguishing factor. 
All that matters since the cross is the distinction between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. You see, the message of the cross, the gospel, is a message that makes a distinction. And this is why the church and the members within are not called primarily to simply do acts of niceness or social justice as the ministry of the church. For that would be foolish because those do not preach the gospel. No, the church and the members within are called to preach the word of the cross. For when the word is preached, those who are being saved will hear it for what it is because the Holy Spirit will reveal it to them as the power of God. And those who are perishing will hear it as the lie of what it is when viewed strictly through the lens of the world as nothing but foolishness. Why on earth would I follow a king when I can be king of my own life? That is foolishness. And this is because the hearing of the gospel will harden their hearts further because they are perishing. So our job then as the church, not just as a pastor, but as the church collectively and individually is to preach the message of the cross. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you did this to someone that the Lord has providentially placed in your life? He has placed them near you so that you can preach the message of the cross. And if they are being saved, they will hear it not because of your eloquent words, but because of the message of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit. And if they are perishing, they will not. Friends, it may take a lifetime of conversations, but it must be preached so that the Holy Spirit can do his work. And in both cases, those who are being saved and those who are perishing, the word of the cross is doing its job and God is glorified. But Hans, you might say, I'm trying to simply love them and be kind to them and develop a bond so that that way they will be won over to the cross by my love. Friend, read the text. As well-intentioned as that may be, that is not how people are saved. They are saved by God when he sends his Holy Spirit into their minds and hearts to illuminate the truth for them, which can only happen with the message of the cross. But be prepared, because being nice will not receive persecution. The message of the cross will. Paul would not use the word, word here, which is logos in Greek, if it were not supposed to be spoken. Brothers and sisters, preach the gospel. And yes, the world will think you are crazy. Do so in truth, do so in kindness, but do so knowing that it has been effective no matter the response. For it is meant to be spoken so that it might harden the hearts of the perishing and break the hearts of those that are being saved by the Holy Spirit. The paradoxical power of the cross proclaimed is found in its ability to make a distinction. Well, Paul continues in verses 19 through 25. He says next, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here we see Paul build on what he has already said by declaring that the word of the cross is a message that humiliates human wisdom. The word of the cross is a message that humiliates human wisdom. Paul intersperses this point and the next into the rest of this section, but he begins with this, that because the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, God is using it, the cross, the word of the cross, 
to humiliate humanity in our attempt to use our own wisdom instead of his. And this is where some theologians have called Christ's kingdom and law an upside-down kingdom. But that is only if we're looking at it from the wrong perspective. The reality is that God's order and law and rule and wisdom was what created the world in which we exist. It is the order. The wisdom contained incarnate in Christ was the foundation of all that exists in the material realm. And so God created the universe in his right-side-up order. And that is all that could have ever happened. But then Satan came along and perverted that order and flipped it upside down. And we refuse to know the truth about God through God's wisdom. So no longer is the world based on God's glory, God's faithfulness, or on mankind's intimate love for one another and good caretaking of creation as seen before the fall. Now, in this upside-down view, it's based on our glory, our selfishness, our love of ourselves, and our desire to pillage creation for all it can give us. We joined in the effort to flip creation upside down. The cross, therefore, is the victorious work to put it back, to flip it back in an even better and more concrete way, to make the world right side up. And so God's people are not called to blend into society, nor conform to its way. Friends, we are not called to evolve with the culture and change to try and convince its inhabitants that Christ is king. We are called to conform to Christ, his word, and his rule. So much so that we will often be seen as standing in opposition to the world's attempt to infiltrate the church. Why? Because the church is an embassy of the right-side-up kingdom of Christ. We are called to think and act in the wisdom of God, not man, which is also why all true discipleship is based on the wisdom of God, not man's great business principles or mentoring principles or TED Talks or podcasts. It's based upon the wisdom of God that can only come from his word. Paul goes directly to this point with a quote from the Old Testament. It was a portion out of the Old Testament reading that we read at the beginning of the gathering. And if we understand its context, it is powerful in Paul's use of it here. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You see, in Isaiah's prophecy to Judah, where this is being pulled from, Isaiah is warning them that he will bring discipline upon them in the form of destruction against Jerusalem because their hearts are far from following him as Lord. They utter some things with their mouths that would make people believe that maybe they follow Yahweh, but in actuality, their hearts, their affections, their motivations, their philosophy of life, if you will, is all worldly. And Jesus uses this same quote in the New Testament reading we heard. Here in Isaiah, they have convinced themselves that they are of Judah and Yahweh, but in actuality, their lives show that they are idolaters who look more like the surrounding pagan nations than the covenant people of Yahweh. Friends, in your philosophies of politics and life, do you look more like the world or like Christ? So God is justly bringing his armies against Judah in Isaiah to destroy them. And the solution would be to repent and turn away from their alliance with the world and turn to God. But no, they think, we can get out of this. We will simply, great idea, align with Egypt and they will save us. This is a great idea, right? Israel aligning with Egypt. If you know any of your Old Testament, what is the problem here? Egypt was the very place that Yahweh saved them from. That's a problem, isn't it? What a perfect allegory for how I and you play around with sin. We cognitively recognize that God has saved us from sin, but then rather than embracing him with all of our life and crucifying our flesh in obedience to him, Rather than taking our philosophies and conforming them to him and knowing that the world will hate us for it, 
we constantly go back to our old ways and our sinful habits and thoughts and affections as if they will save us. It's earthly and sinful, satanic and dark false wisdom. It is foolishness in the eyes of God, and yet in the eyes of our fleshly nature. It's not foolishness, it's wise. Is there something, friends, that you are living through right now that is based on the wisdom of the flesh and not the wisdom of God? Perhaps Paul's words here are for you, that you need to stop playing the game of the world and start submitting in obedience to Christ. So what does Isaiah prophesy God will then do? Well, here it is on the board. Isaiah 29, 14 through 18. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the things made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. This section in Isaiah says that God will perform a miracle and save those that are truly his, and he will do so through the preaching of the word. Their eyes will be opened, and they will see because of God's message. So Paul gets the Corinthians to open their eyes to what they are doing. He says the Jews want to find wisdom by going to the scribes. The Greeks want to find wisdom by going to the sophists, the debaters, Friends, we want to find wisdom by going to the podcasters and the therapists and the TED Talkers and the motivational speakers and the politicians and the influencers and the other myriad of voices. But are they giving us wisdom from God? Is Joe Rogan giving you wisdom from God? Are they giving us the word of the cross? Absolutely not. But I, I think he's close to being saved. Jordan Peterson, he's, he's right there. I think he might be a Christian. Is he giving you the word of the cross? And the answer is no. I pray that Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson are saved by the Lord so they do use their platform for the cross. But they're not doing so yet, even if it might seem like it sometimes. Paul gets them to understand what they're doing. He continues by telling the church at Corinth, stop using earthly qualifications to look for wisdom. You see, the Jews and the Gentiles and really all humanity, we fool ourselves into thinking that we are seeking wisdom because we surround ourselves with possible opinions and voices. The more I hear, the better informed I am. But most often, we're only surrounding ourselves with counsel that will tickle our ears and build our case for our own wisdom. And so Jews, in their attempt to justify who they were going to follow, were looking for signs that the Messiah would supposedly perform. But friends, Jesus came and proved that this was all hypocrisy. He performed signs. I mean, he walked on water, for goodness sakes. He raised people from the dead. And he did this over and over again. And yet the nation of Israel as a whole went, yeah, no, you're not the guy. And then they crucified him on a cross. And yet Corinth and many churches and Christians today still look for signs to validate wisdom. Do you speak in tongues? Do you have a word of knowledge? Well, if you do, I'll listen to you. But if you don't, eh, I'm not so sure of your spiritual credentials. Perhaps it is the hyper-spiritual signs that we'll discuss later in 1 Corinthians. Or perhaps it's the sign of a growing church or emotional draw or charisma that would have been affirmed greatly in both 1st century Corinth and 21st century America any of these ways, though, is false and foolish. The Greeks were no different. They wanted wisdom from the sophists. These traveling debaters were revered as gods in that society, and the philosophy that undergirded their society still very much undergirds our own. 
philosophy, a word that comes from the root words phileo and sophia, the love, phileo, of wisdom, sophia. Everyone in our society in 2024 believes themselves to be philosophers. If you don't agree, go run through your TikTok feed or Instagram. This is why Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and so many others have so many followers. They are the philosophers, the sophists of this age. Sophists selling their brand of wisdom to the masses, and the masses are all too happy to take in their supposed wisdom. But Paul is clear. These so-called peddlers of wisdom have nothing to contribute to salvation. In order to show that the wisdom of the world was foolish, God did something otherworldly. He had to bring victory through the very means that the world uses for humiliation. He brought it through the cross. Friends, to the Jews, this was a stumbling block because the Messiah was supposed to be a conquering king on a white horse. How on earth would he be crucified naked? That's humiliating. And to the Greeks, it was just as bad. The Greeks looked at that and said, that would be foolish. Look at these amazing sophists. They're better Christs, better Messiahs than Jesus was. Think about the practical nature of how the cross still humiliates this kind of wisdom today, though. Take the worldly idea that mankind is innately good, and if given the opportunity, will choose righteousness on their own. The cross literally declares that when given the opportunity, mankind will murder the one who has authority over them and falsely charge their creator with wrongdoing. It proves that true wisdom is to understand the innate depravity of all man and our need for salvation. It humiliates the wisdom of mankind. How about the idea that has subversively found its way into the church that all the world really needs is the gospel of nice to win over hearts? Friends, the cross was the last stop in the life of the most perfect, most loving, most faithful, most gentle, most kind human to ever walk the earth. And humanity crucified him. Again, the cross proves that true wisdom points to man's depravity and our need for salvation. It humiliates man's supposed wisdom. How about the idea that authority is inherently evil because it causes an unfair power dynamic? Well, the cross declares that the authority of God, which is the source for all other true authority, is gracious and loving. It declares that God gave up his authority that could easily and justly have been used to destroy us, and he instead died for us in service in the sacrifice of the cross. The wisdom provided by the cross shows that God can be trusted and those he puts in authority that are following his word can be trusted and followed. The cross humiliates human wisdom. Friend, in what ways are you trying to solve your problems through the very means the world's wisdom would suggest? Perhaps you need to let the cross speak to your situation in humility and apply God's wisdom. If you want to do that, but you don't know how, please come chat with any one of the pastors after the gathering that will be standing up here at the end. We would love to help you apply the word of the cross to your situation. In these and many other ways, the paradoxical power of the cross proclaimed destroys mankind's wisdom and instead becomes the message that would be foolishness to the world. What is that message? that the all-powerful God condescended to mankind to provide a way through his humiliating death to selflessly take on the wrath rightfully owed to mankind. And rather than death being the sign of defeat as the world saw it, death on the cross became the place, the launching pad from which victory and conquering through resurrection could happen. And rather than humiliation, the cross was a place of coronation, an enthronement for a king of the right-side-up kingdom who is coming again to make all things new. And most of all, the cross declares clearly that it is God who saves, not man. For we just saw that man does not have innate righteousness to choose God. God is the one that has to save. 
For the wisdom of the world says, nah, give mankind a choice. Reason with them enough, and they'll choose God. They'll choose the God toward whom their good hearts are already reaching. The cross humiliates the wisdom of humanity. The word of the cross declares that idea to be foolishness. For God elects whom he will and saves them by his power, not theirs. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that is why, lastly, the word of the cross is a message that saves believers. Amen? Amen. How much gratitude is there in this room for this fact? A message that saves believers. Let's read again just verses 21 and 24 and see what he says here. 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 24. But to those who are called, called by who? Called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Mankind refused to submit to the truth of wisdom that we are creatures, and he is the creator. Instead, we believed that we are the authority. We should have the say. And that the creator is not the Lord, but we are. In so doing, we were blinded to the truth that basic wisdom declares, that we are finite and created and in need of a being greater than the creation we inhabit for the provision of everything. And so it was natural then that man would scoff at and dismiss any proclamation that this false truth we had concocted was actually foolishness. Our pride, our arrogance blinded us from the truth. So God, through the historical event of the cross, enacted something that would confront and condemn human wisdom. And then through the proclamation of that event, he showed who he was calling by illuminating the eyes of those he has called to understand the message of the cross was and is truth. Friends, I have seen this for 20 plus years I've been in ministry. When you preach the cross, one person will have nothing to do with it and harden their heart. And the exact same message will make another weep because they are humbled to know that they are a sinner in need of a savior. Friends, that is not based on personality or upbringing or environment or language. It is based on the work of the Holy Spirit alone. For when God softens the heart of one of his elect, the blinders fall off just as they did for Paul. And the human has no choice but to understand the truth that God's wisdom is true and that we are rebellious sinners and that he is proven righteous. Praise God that we have no choice but to do so. For if we did, we would push it aside. And it is the message of the cross that hits and connects with the human heart at the exact intersection of God's gracious justification and our transformation. Those who are his elect will not be converted because of debate, or because of logical convincing, nor will they actually be converted because they have been taught that Christianity will result in the greatest life and the most success. No, the elect and chosen people of God, both Jew and Gentile, will be converted because by the grace of God, they will see Christ for who he is. And they will hear his word for what it is, that he is the cosmic king of all the created universe, and his word is absolute and undeniable truth. In the simple message of the cross, the transformed heart hears and knows that the salvation enacted by Jesus was not foolish nor empty. It was the display for all the cosmos of God's power and God's wisdom, putting what had been made upside down back to right side up. Friend, if you have heard the message of the cross this morning and the Lord is calling on your heart to respond to it, any one of the pastors would love to talk to you and help you to know what it is to walk as a Christian. For it is not just a one-time response, it is a lifetime given at the foot of the cross in submission and obedience to your king. And so what a beautiful providence of God 
that this morning as we hear this truth and conclude our sermon on this text, that we get to see the truths proclaimed in such obvious application. For this morning, we have a chance to see the power and wisdom of the word of the cross in action. In a moment, we'll have four individuals of this church state publicly their acceptance of Christ as king and their connection to this church body. They do so because they have been convicted by the word of the cross and want to lay their lives down in service of Christ and his church within this local expression of Christ's universal church. We're going to have the kids come in from class, and they're going to sit down here to observe with us and see the power of God in action. And then after, those four individuals stand and give their vows, and then we will hear one of the best applications that we could have for the word of the cross as our brother Tyler Blanchett gives his testimony and enters the water of baptism to declare that his eyes have been opened to the word of the cross and that this word of the cross is wisdom and power of God. Sorry, I always get choked up with baptisms. He will do so not with eloquent words, but with the truth of what the cross has done in his life. That the all-powerful God has condescended to be humiliated by taking our rightly deserved death. And it is this message which has opened up the eyes of God's people to power and to wisdom. Friends, what a paradoxical power we see in the cross proclaimed. All praise and honor and glory to God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for the power of the cross. That by the simple preaching of the event, Jesus, of your death and your resurrection, our hearts are made new. All power and glory and honor to you. As we now get a chance as a family, as a church family that's a local expression of your greater universal church, as we get a chance, Lord, to see the power of the cross in action. We pray that you would open our eyes that much further to what you have done in our brothers' and sisters' lives, that you have called them to yourselves, yourself. You have elected them. You have made them your own. They have been chosen as part of your chosen people. And Lord, we thank you for this because we know that without your work on the cross, not one of us in this room would be able to save ourselves or even open our eyes to the truth of your wisdom. And so we now do what we're about to do as a church in all glory and honor to you, and we pray that you would be enthroned in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.